0: Welcome to the Discipleship Discussions Podcast. We believe everyone can be a disciple who makes disciples. Our goal is to help you with this process. Each week, we take the lesson taught through basic discipleship and break it down in a discussion format. Now, let's join today's discussion.
1: Hey, welcome back to our podcast. So glad that you've joined us, whether you're listening or watching. My name is Benji Linder, and with me as always is Dr. Patrick Latham. Today we're going to talk about how the Bible was preserved. Um, So why is this principle or this doctrine about the Bible preservation important to the average person in the pew, or in our case, in the chair?
2: Yeah, I think it, it ties to some of the things we've talked about earlier when you talk about inspiration, inerrancy, and sufficiency. When you understand this idea that Jesus, the prophets, Mm -hmm. promised that the Word of God would be kept for us, um, that that helps you see that, hey, inspiration, inerrancy, sufficiency are true. They are important. Um, God's promised to keep His Word. So, um, you know, a lot of times when we begin to doubt the Word, is it sufficient today? all the crazy stuff going on in the world is the bible enough. You know, when you when you understand that the lord has providentially, sovereignly, supernaturally kept his truth for us, then that should give you a higher regard of scripture. Mm-hmm.
1: Which I was, you know, looking at reading Old Testament truth and seeing the issues in the lives of men and women there. Fast forward in thousands of years, Mm -hmm. see how God is, and I'm grateful God's preserved scripture because seeing the correlations between what it was like 6,000 years ago versus right now. And this, we're dealing with the same exact issues. They just have a different, you know, look to them per se. Um, so would you declare that if preservation was not true, then the Bible wouldn't be true? Mm,
2: no, I would say, you know, it was um, true when it was delivered and given. Right. But because it is true, then the Lord uh, has promised to keep it and preserve it yeah. for us. Yeah. So, you know, don't know, maybe that's like a chicken or egg question. I don't right. Know, which came first? So, um, or. Um, Could God, if He's all powerful, could He create a rock He couldn't move? You know, or whatever. But
1: that question always gets me. Yeah, yeah. I would
2: say yes. He would create a rock He couldn't move, and then He'd move it. That's right. That's right. He would um, prove um, them possible. Yeah, but um, no, yeah, I would say you know, good point there. I think what you're getting at there is that the idea that by nature of it being Mm -hmm. true, it must be preserved. That's right. So that's a good, good point uh, to make. That. Because it is his word, Mm. it must be eternal, it must be preserved.
1: Right. And we can trust it because it has been preserved. Mm -hmm. You know, if it wasn't preserved, could we really Mm -hmm. trust that, right? You can shoot holstered at that Mm -hmm. point. Um, So when I look at the preservation of Scripture, if preservation wasn't present, uh, then we would have a real problem believing in the Mm -hmm. truth of Scripture and believing that what we have is Mm -hmm. God's Word. You know, you hear a lot um, of—for me, this is a a doctrine I really get passionate about because
2: you hear so little about it mm -hmm. and so little mention of Jesus' words and those promises. I mean— I think in the lesson, I cited him saying the same thing basically three different times in three different ways, subtle differences in how he gave this promise. But, you know, at the end of the day, you hear a lot of people wanting to debate. I was just at a lunch today. People talking about critical race theory and sufficiency of Scripture. And, you know, I think when we have those debates, a lot of times those debates will be settled if we just went back to this doctrine. Right. You know, and the other ones, you know, you hear a lot of talk about inspiration, inerrancy, authority and sufficiency. Really, this teaching settles all of those. Mm-hmm. When you understand he's promised the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. That promise alone tells you it must be inspired. It must be without error. It must be authoritative. It must be sufficient if he has indeed promised this.
1: Correct. Correct. And so I'm going to go ahead and jump to the next question because what you, you just referred, Jesus said in Luke 16:17, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one stroke of a letter of the law to drop out. Mm-hmm. And so how does that truth play in part of the big picture of preservation? Like, why did Jesus say that? What's the mm-hmm. connection there? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. So when you look at heaven and earth passing away, that is the idea of end time cataclysmic event that is you know when you read in uh, revelation behold I saw a new heaven and a new earth so basically what Jesus is saying there is that the word of God is even more permanent than the creative order heaven and earth you know Mm -hmm. you see in the beginning of Genesis in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth so Jesus here by saying heaven and earth will pass away saying that the word of God is more permanent than even the creative order. And we know that is true. Why? Because how did God create the creative order? In the beginning, God said. So it is through His Word that the world was created. So His Word actually, again, more preeminent, more prominent, more permanent than even the creative order that He made because the creative order came through His spoken Word. And then you see the psalmist saying, Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven so that is like even before time began, the word of God existed. And Proverbs 8 teaches that with the personification of wisdom, which we think is Jesus Christ. You know, it talks about I was there at the beginning of time when you made all things. So this idea that Jesus, when Jesus says, not, you know, one jot, one tittle will not pass away. Heaven and earth could pass away before your words will pass away. It's not just that he's preserved it, or I'm going to keep it without error and without corruption or dilution until the end of time. I mean, it is that, but it's the idea that it even existed before time began. True. By very nature of it, his word exists with him and always has, always will. It'll never pass away. It is even more durable than the creative order that one day will will pass away. Right? It started the creative order started with let there be light revelation 19:11 through 15 teaches one day jesus will come back on a white horse you know and i don't know if he'll literally come back on the white horse i think there's a lot of metaphor there i think that white horse symbolizes victory mm-hmm. right he's going to have victory over all of kings of the earth and set up his kingdom and it says that there will be a sharp sword coming out of his mouth? What does that mean? Does that mean that there will literally be this grotesque Jesus rah, 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 with the big sword right. coming out of his mouth? No, I think it's figurative that he will come back. What, what is the sword? It is an instrument of judgment. He will come back, and what is his mouth? It's where you speak. He will merely speak at the end of time, and human history will cease to exist, just as he spoke at the beginning of time to begin human history. So his word at the beginning brings the earth, the heavens and the earth and human history uh, to a beginning. His word at the end of time will bring all those things to an end as well, showing that his word is permanent and it, um,
1: it is preeminent even above the creative order. That's right. That's right. So moving to the next point, you talked about in your teaching session that we have thousands of copies of the manuscripts today versus yeah. and this was what 1946 Dead Sea Scrolls 47, 47. Yeah. I was close. I was in the yeah, neighborhood yeah. this this week. Um but yeah, so that plays a part in Who the, won the World Series in 1947. Is that baseball? <laughs> that gives you my answer right there. Yeah. Uh Yankees? Uh, probably so. Okay, I'm know. just going to take a wild guess or yeah. Red Sox. I was going a 50/50 chance there. Um so when you're looking at just the amount of manuscripts we have today, uh, does this help or hurt our modern translations and would you recommend a modern translation versus an older translation that was even before we found all these copies?
2: Yeah, I think it I think it helps. I mean like in just, you know, you can compare like 600 and something manuscripts back Homer's works, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And we know, you know, like in high school, you, I went to high school and I had to read Homer and um, the Odyssey. Then I went to a junior college and I had to read world literature, Homer, the Odyssey. Then I, I transferred and went to another college, I had to take another world lit class, Homer again. I'm like, dude, this guy, Homer. The only Homer I knew was like Homer on the Simpsons. Simpsons. Yeah, so. that's I was I was going to make that <laughs> so. joke. But like, I read his stuff too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, um, you know, and you just see how this work is venerated and everybody's like, this is one of the, you know, greatest works of um world lit and history. Mm-hmm. And we know this was, you know, even studied how it was passed down, oral tradition and all that, then recorded. Yet you have about ten times as many manuscripts backing up the New Testament. So it helps from that perspective, like, wow. This can be trusted. Mm -hmm. It also helps when it comes to variations or variances and textual criticism that we can look at where maybe there's slight differences, none that change overall doctrine. But um, when you see these slight variations, you're able to compare and contrast and then get a good idea of, okay, here's what it appears the original would have been. Or we, we believe we can get closest to the original through this compare contrast process we call textual criticism. We can land on which we think is closest to the original. Therefore, as we hold a modern translation in our hands, mm-hmm. we have confidence that there's there's this providential work of the Lord in preserving all these manuscripts. Like that's unthinkable. There's no book that even comes close, no work of antiquity that can even get near mm-hmm. 5,000 plus manuscripts. So that's, that's the hand of the Lord and preserving all of these for us. But then we can have confidence that kind of a a scientific human process we've compared and contrasted and where there are variations. we got people a lot smarter than us that have said, this appears to be closest to the original. So as we hold the modern translation in our hands, we can have good confidence in the providential work of the Lord, preserving all those manuscripts, keeping them safe for us, but also faithful people who've compared and contrasted. And use good reasoning and a, a scientific method of saying what appears to be the original. Yeah.
1: So, World Series winner of nineteen forty seven. Who was it? The Yankees.
2: Boom. Boom. I'm not even a baseball yeah. guy, but <laughs> they beat the Brooklyn Dodgers in how many games? Here, let's see. Uh, in seven games. Okay, so that was probably a good one. Yeah, the Yankees won Game
1: Seven. Five to two. Did ESPN broadcast that? No. That <laughs> no, was a joke. <laughs> they're, they're old, but not that yeah. old. Uh, Lee Corso <laughs> was <the> <laughs> good <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Year-wise, he probably could have done that. Um, all right, so – uh, we would obviously say we use, you and I use both um, the CSB, the Christian Standard yeah. Bible. So you would recommend that over something like the King James. And for me, it's like total respect for those. Yeah. Typically for those who have the KJV only, um, I think they care a, a lot about that and yeah. that they read their Bible a lot and they're very passionate. Yeah. Um, but I have no problem recommending a modern translation. Yeah yeah
2: I don't either and I was really and I don't know if you and I've ever talked about this, but I was uh, steeped and trained in King James mm-hmm. onlyism uh, in the college I went to and so thankful for that experience because I got to hear that side and when I was when I was trained in that um, the issue was the text they would claim that the Texas Receptus a set of mm-hmm. a, a Greek Greek text, Erasmus Greek text that he compiled. They would claim that that was better or superior to uh, those within the critical text, which takes into account a lot of other Greek uh, manuscripts. You know, We mentioned these over 5,000. So um, they would claim that those were perverted, that they were found in Egypt, that they were found in a trash can, that we should go with what Erasmus compiled. They miss out on the fact that Erasmus, when he put together his Greek New Testament, he had a lot of revisions and changes himself. So it's like, which one do you want to go with? Um, So they were, the text is the issue. They would even say, if we had a new modern translation based on the Erasmus Greek, the TR, Mm -hmm. the um, received text, the Texas Receptus, then we'd be fine with that. And I don't know if they genuinely meant that, but because they're, I don't. From what I know, there hasn't been a modern translation based on that. Right, just the King James. So since then, you've had all these new manuscripts found, and you've had the compilation Westcott and Horde of what's called the critical text, and that's what modern translations are based on. So, so that school I went to, they were against the critical text more than they were just against new modern translations. And um, so that, but there's people today who maybe don't even understand all those issues. And they get caught up on they, they don't understand what a synonym is, in my opinion. Like they'll get—I've heard people like um, you know, yeah, Galatians. The uh, King James uses the word temperance for a fruit of the spirit. You know, fruit of the spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, uh, gentleness, goodness, gentle. peace, patience, spirit. peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Mm-hmm. Uh, I made it botched the list a little bit there, That's but true. they would say it's temperance in King James. You know. All the new translations have self-control. That's humanistic thought. That's God gives temperance. He doesn't give self-control. You don't need self-control. You need spirit control. Like man, you're just getting you're playing semantic police. That's just a synonym, Mm -hmm. and I think we can understand that. So there's two different camps: some who are just caught up on words, like you're watering down Scripture by having these new modern words in there instead of old ones. Um, Then there's others who are caught up on the text. For me the real argument is okay i can deal with synonyms and different translations and variations and translation techniques and debate that you know i had to really wrestle through do i trust the critical text or the texas receptus at the end of the day i believe erasmus's text was a critical text too he just used what he had at that time to compile his greek new testament That's right um so Uh, I'm fine with translations based on the critical text. I do like for them to take into account what Erasmus had. Mm -hmm. So example, at the end of the Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Many critical text translations will stop there. I like to at least see and be aware of that other variance that would say, For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So um I like the Christian standard in that, that it will have in the notes those variances. Some I, I was talking to Buddy just this past week, he said, I preach the ending part of Mark, not thinking that some of the people in church won't even have those verses in their Bible. You know, mine have it like in a bracket and Correct. say some. Earlier manuscripts do not include these verses. Um, that same Erasmus's mm-hmm. manuscripts did. Mm-hmm. So um, I preach those verses mm-hmm. when we were in Mark sixteen. But my buddy gets up there, preach it. Doesn't he forgets? There's gonna be people out there. It's just not even in their Bible. They're, they're like, flipping what? through. Yeah. Yeah. Like what yeah. happened? Yeah. So it's like those variances. I think we should make. It's good to have what Erasmus would have had in front of you and say these younger manuscripts or newer manuscripts have this. The older do not. All that for me, instead of saying, oh man, there's errors in the Bible, all that is witness of preservation, that we have all these manuscripts, and then we step back and try to say, okay, out of all this, what appears to be the earliest, the best, the most reliable, the most accurate? Gotcha. So I gave you a lot there. I can't remember. No, the no, question. you're good. <laughs> no, no,
1: you answered the question. Is um, you know, how's that? How's the uh, preservation correlated to yeah. modern translations? Can we trust a modern translation and compared to older translations based off of the you know through the lens of preservation? So yeah. um, the answer would be yes, and that is a okay to have a modern yeah, and translation. I'll say, uh, a lot of this man teaching it. A lot of it
2: um, goes above my head, you know, and I realize there's a lot I don't know here. And at the end of the day, like I read, I'll read stuff on the manuscripts, how the Bible is preserved in history. And I'm like, number one, there's no way I can travel back in time and see all this. Mm-hmm. Number two, there's stuff like, I mean, I can read Greek New Testament to some degree, but I can't read the original or their originals aren't there, but I can't read all these manuscripts. Like I'm not an expert. At the end of the day, you know, I've read on this to some degree, but a lot of it goes way over my head. At the end of the day, I'm trusting what the Bible says that the Lord's preserved his word and that I hold it in my hand and that this process of writing, preserving, we're gonna get into um we're gonna get into our next session on canonization. We're gonna talk about um translation as well. I trust that the Lord providentially has kept his word safe for me through that process. So at the end of the day, a lot of it comes back to um a lot of it comes back to faith. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. So um, I think the book recommendation that I've read on this that helps is um, the King James Only Controversy, Can You Trust the Bible, James White. Oh, yeah. yeah can exactly. you trust modern translations? Mm-hmm. So it's not just like when I read that, I was like want to read on the King James Only Controversy, but he goes in for laymen, for the ordinary Christian, goes into just a process of manuscripts and all that and it's really helpful
1: good good i've i've heard of that i probably even have that book never yeah. never read it all right let's sum up this lesson with with this quote from a guy that I'm going to just butcher his name and own it. Balthazar Uh, of Hubmeier, uh yeah. but it's probably not what, how you pronounce it. But he it's said, Balt. Balt. I love that. That's great. So Balt <laughs> said, truth is immortal. So we live in this postmodern culture where they will say there is no truth. Mm-hmm. Ironically so, that would be a truth. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. um, so how, how do we look at preservation and how truth is immortal in a postmodern world? Yeah. So, uh,
2: you know, the, the spirit, we're in a postmodern world, but the spirit is even seen in the New Testament with Pilate, mm-hmm. you know, his cynicism before Jesus, when Jesus speaks of truth and he says, what is truth? That spirit lives on. That right. spirit is found even in the Garden of Eden. You know, did God really say, like, this, this assault on is there truth? So this is satanic. It's existed throughout the ages uh, this question, questioning, and cynicism of truth—you know—so I think you first of all diagnose that and show that this is an age-old fallacy that there is no truth, and we need to be wise to our enemy's tactics. Secondly, I often like to go to nature, science, mathematics, and music. For me, all of those things are evidence. Just the way math operates this universal language that undergirds our. Uh, all that we do that undergirds even our world and physics. Um, You know, that that's evidence that there is a degree of structure, truth. There are axioms that undergird things in nature. Um, Even, you know, you think of that in mathematics, you think of that in physics, you think of that in music, you think of that in nature, you think of that in anatomy, even the human body, body, that there are principles by which the body operates that are irreversible. I mean, we know this in all of life. Truth is woven into the fabric of creation. And so, you know, I like to start there. But then to, to, um, then to talk about a Christian worldview, that a Christian worldview answers all of the hard questions of life. I mean, it really does um, give um, a solution for questions like, why, where did we come from? why are we here what's gone wrong with the world how can it be made right where are we going all of those questions are answered reasonably by christianity so i think by um by offering those solutions many times yes you can reason from the creative order Um, that would be general revelation talking about Mm -hmm. principles nature um even you could use the moral argument that there is truth. Like you said earlier, saying there is no truth, that's a truth statement. And then there, there is, we, we seem to naturally have this inclination to the, to the idea that there's truth. You know, now, now, the enemy's fighting against this, but, but every argument against injustice that we see today is an argument for truth. So somebody argues against human trafficking, you believe there is truth. You believe that there are moral imperatives hanging over um, creation. Somebody argues for Black Lives Matter. You're arguing for truth that lives, that humankind, that a, an ethnic group matters. You're making a moral claim. Um, so you could go down the line: genocide, you know, unjust taxation, a dick, cruel dictator. You are, you know, starving people. You know, um, you're arguing. You're making a moral imperative. So you're showing that you believe there are things that are right, there are things that are wrong, there is truth. So, you know, the extreme examples, there are people pushing the envelope that would argue for pedophilia or whatever that, hey, we can live according to our whims, you know, at least are true to their worldview. You know, there is no truth, you know, even Mm -hmm. something as heinous as this. Mm -hmm. It's not off limits, you know, so, um, I think you can argue from nature, you can argue from science, you can argue, make moral arguments to show we believe there's truth, and then you can uphold the Word of God as answering every question related to a worldview and, and show it to be sufficient.
1: Absolutely. And God has preserved his word. It is eternally true. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that is one of the tools we can use to argue against a postmodern thought. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for tuning in, listening, watching us. We look forward to seeing you or rather you seeing us or listening to us next week.
0: Thank you for joining us today for our discussion on basic doctrine of the Bible. Stay current with other episodes by subscribing to our podcast. For show notes, visit us online at basicdiscipleship.net. If you have any questions about the materials presented in this discussion, or if you would like to give feedback, email us at info at Thanks for listening.